in the Gospel of Mark. You probably knew that if you're a regular. We're studying through the Gospel of Mark. We find ourselves in chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Please follow along in your Bible or on your device. Mark 9, verses 1 through 13. The topic, coming down from the mountain after Jesus was transfigured before them, his disciples have a question for him. The title of our message, they'll be questioning down the mountain when they come. (laughs) You guys need to come first service. Would you do me a favor and come first service next week? Let's pray. Father, thank you for our morning. I always... I don't know why, Lord, but I always envision you here walking among us because of what you said in the book of the Revelation when you wrote to the seven churches, Lord, you indicated to some of those churches that you were walking in the midst of the candlesticks and that you were there present in a special, powerful way. We know you're omnipresent, Lord, that we can meet with you and walk with you anywhere, but there is just a special manifest presence when we get together as the church. And so I pray, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, teach us this morning from this passage. In Jesus' name we pray, and those who agreed said, amen. There are any number of apps or websites where you can upload a photo of yourself and see how you will look as you age. Have you done this? Have anybody done this? I decided to do it for you so that you could see what this is like. So here am I in 20 years. I plan, so uh, really, I mean, uh, what kind of graciousness is that? Now, since this was a non-Christian app, I, I decided to factor in the tribulation. If I were to go through the tribulation, this is what I would look like. Yes, it is. It's mostly for fun. <laughs> But it's also being used by health professionals to inspire lifestyle behavioral changes. One company advertises they can add the effects of obesity, smoking, excessive drinking, drug use, and even sun exposure. Their research suggests that if a person sees how wasted they're going to look because of those things, you'll give up bad habits. It's not all vanity to focus on what you're going to look like in the future. In fact, if you're a Christian, this should be a daily practice. We're told by the Apostle John in his first letter, Beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so John is telling us to look at the future and see what Jesus looks like, because that's what you're going to look like. And he encourages us to think about that because he says, it will lead to a more spiritually healthy lifestyle now. He put it this way. He says, everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. The answer to aging isn't Botox. It's being born again and being raised or raptured with a glorious new body that is outfitted for life and eternity with Jesus Christ. In our text, three of Jesus' disciples accompany him up a mountain and they witness him being transfigured before them. They see Jesus as he will look in the future and for all eternity. It gave them a glimpse 
of their own futures. And guess what? We too can see our future in the transfiguration of Jesus. I've organized my thoughts around two points. Number one, seeing Jesus transfigured, you realize you are becoming more like him. And seeing Jesus transfigured, number two, you realize you will be coming back with him. Let's take a look, first of all, verses one through eight, becoming more like Jesus. The Apostle Paul tells us we will appear with Jesus in glory. And then he says, awaiting us is an eternal weight of glory. Jesus prayed to the Father about us saying, the glory that you have given me, I give to them. Theologians call this the doctrine of glorification. Here's a definition. Glorification is the future final work of God upon Christians where he transforms our mortal physical bodies to the eternal physical bodies in which we will dwell forever. We are guaranteed glorified physical bodies because Jesus rose from the dead in one. He is called the first fruits of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 states it this way. Now Jesus has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Asleep meaning Christians who have died. He is the first fruits and we will follow. His resurrection is the promise and the guarantee of our future resurrection in similar glorified bodies. Now, it's one thing to say it, and it's quite another to see it. Some of Jesus' guys saw it, and we're going to see what they saw through the eyes of Mark. And so, verse 1, he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. A little bit of review. Chapter 8 of Mark's gospel marks an important turning point in the Lord's ministry. Knowing that the national leaders of Israel would reject him and reject his offer of the kingdom on the earth, Jesus began predicting he would suffer at their hands, that he would be crucified and die, and that he would rise from the dead. The earthly kingdom promised the Jews in their scriptures would be delayed. It would come, it will come, but not in the lifetimes of Jesus' first followers. His words in verse 1 are a promise that a few of those guys would get a sneak peek, they would get a preview of the coming kingdom. We can liken it to movie trailers. To me, the trailers are the best part of going to the movie. If there's not at least four trailers, I feel like I've been robbed. Sometimes in smaller theaters especially, I'll hear people moan when another trailer comes on. I'm thinking, man, bring it on. I want to see what's coming, and it just, there's just something exciting about it. I told you once before, and it's true, some of you didn't believe it, but there are people who are such fans of certain movies that they will hear that the trailer is going to be uh, debuting ahead of a certain movie that weekend, and they'll buy a ticket to the movie just to watch the trailer. And after the trailer ends, they'll leave and not even watch the movie because it's worth 18 bucks for them to see the Star Wars trailer before the movie comes out. We did this once for the Lord of the Rings, although we stayed for the movie. It turned out to be a pretty good movie because we were big fans of that series. Jesus may as well have said, coming to a mountain near you, a scene from the future coming kingdom. And they get that scene in verse two, after six days, when Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. 
There seem to have been groupings of threes within the 12 disciples of Jesus. Peter, James, and John seem to have been privileged to be with Jesus on certain special occasions. For example, they were the three who witnessed the Lord raise a little girl from the dead. Now here they were with him as he was transfigured. Jesus, of course, didn't play favorites. There's no favoritism with the Lord. And it's clear that these three guys were not necessarily the most devout or the most spiritual. At least one commentator suggested that these three were the most likely to get in trouble. So Jesus had to keep a closer watch on them. So what do we make of this grouping or groupings in general? Well, only that we ought to focus on our own submission to and our own service to the Lord and not concern ourselves with how he is using others. And that may sound easy, but it's really hard uh, because we have a tendency in the world in which we live to think that, that uh, good work, hard work is rewarded in a certain way with more success, with you know, more money, more people, whatever it might be. And a lot of times if we look at other servants of the Lord, it seems like we're kind of standing still while they're getting farther ahead. We need to quit all of that kind of thinking and just concentrate on, Lord, what do you want me to do today? What should I be about? I don't care what Gene is doing. I don't care what Jacob is doing. That's between you and those people. Because the Lord's not just using us to serve others. He's also ministering to us to change us into his image. And we're all going to be in different places in that. And so we need to quit thinking about uh, worldly success and applying it to the church and just be servants of the Lord. The high mountain is believed to be Mount Hermon. It's over 9,000 feet above sea level and because the valley uh, below it is below sea level, it rises to 11,000 feet above the valley floor. As an aside, it seems Jesus was quite the avid mountain climber. Several times at key spiritual moments, you see him up a mountain. The devil, you might recall, took Jesus to a high mountain during the wilderness temptations. But we also talk of the Sermon on the Mount. And then there was the Olivet Discourse, and that's called it because it was delivered on the Mount of Olives. And so I think Jesus was a recreational climber. I mean, he uh, had a lot to do, uh, you know, with climbing mountains, and he he just enjoyed it. And I think that's kind of cool. The word transfigured is where we get our word metamorphosis. I can't think, uh, I can't help but think of bullfrogs and butterflies. You remember the old Barry Maguire song? How, who remembers Barry Maguire? Bullfrogs and butterflies, we've both been born again. Everybody has one hit. But anyway... <laughs> Uh, he was a good guy. He also had a song about Jesus being a space cowboy. Remember that? Yeah, not the Steve Miller song, but uh, uh, anyway, just forget that. <laughs> Let me say something as clearly as I know how before we discuss the transfiguration. Jesus was fully God from eternity. When he came to earth, he added to his deity his humanity, and he was fully God and fully man. There was never a time and there never will be a time when Jesus was not God. He is fully God. When he rose from the dead, he did so in a glorified human body. He will remain the God-man in that body for eternity. You realize that? You realize that's true. Uh, there are heresies and, and false teachings that talk about Jesus 
you know, losing his deity, becoming a man, and picking up his deity again. Not true. Jesus was always God. He added to his deity, his humanity. When he rose from the dead, he did so in a glorified physical body that he will have for eternity. What then did the disciples see when Jesus was transfigured? I believe they saw Jesus as he will appear in the future after his resurrection for eternity. They saw him as the first fruits of those who would be raised from the dead. They saw what John would later see again on the island of Patmos, the risen Jesus Christ described in great detail in chapter 1 of the Revelation. Remember, too, that what they saw was the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that some standing here are going to get a preview of the kingdom. They saw Jesus as he will appear when he returns to earth in power and glory to establish and rule the kingdom as the forever glorified God-man. Now, in verse 3, it says, His clothes became shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Uh, Mark's the only one who gives this kind of odd detail that he didn't get these from super dry-cleaned clothes. Uh, the idea here is that although clothed and in a real human body, the glory was coming from within Jesus and shining through. It wasn't something that he took on himself. In the Marvel film Ant-Man, the hero has a suit that allows him to shrink in size and possess superhuman strength and control armies of ants. Jesus wasn't an ordinary man with a superhuman costume. He was and is God in human flesh, and in the future we will see him as he is. Now, verse 4, Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. This just gets better and better. This is like being at a concert with surprise special guests that blow your socks off. You ever had that experience where you're at a con, you're already enjoying the concert because it's somebody that you paid good money to see, and then a, a special guest comes out and you think, wow, this is incredible. The disciples had never seen Elijah or Moses. They'd never even seen any pictures of them, obviously. No representations. Yet they knew exactly, immediately, who these guys were. And I don't think it's because they were wearing name badges. They just knew. That's one of the reasons we can say with confidence, you will know your loved ones in heaven. They will know you. In fact, everyone will know everyone. There will be super knowledge of every person in heaven. Uh, you won't need introductions. You'll just know. Now, we could spend weeks talking about Elijah and Moses from this text. I don't want to do that. I'm going to just give you a couple of details that help to make sense of their appearance in the context of this episode. First of all, we know from the revelation of Jesus Christ that two very powerful witnesses will be on earth during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. We think they are Elijah and Moses partly because of the powers they exhibit during that time. The two witnesses are said to have power for three and a half years to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the day of their prophecy. And they are said to have the power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Who in the Old Testament stopped the rain for three and a half years? Well, that would be Elijah. Who in the Old Testament turned water into blood and struck the earth with plagues? Well, that would be Moses. It makes sense that Elijah and Moses would appear with Jesus 
in light of what we know about the future, talking to him about the coming kingdom because they're the two guys from the Old Testament who are going to play an important role in it. Now, Elijah is famous for being taken to heaven in the chariot of fire without ever dying. Moses, on the other hand, died, but then something curious occurred. Satan wanted his dead body, but God dispatched the archangel Michael to dispute with the devil and to preserve Moses' body. Putting that together, you've got one person whose body was preserved but is raised to be with Jesus in the kingdom, and you've got another person who was raptured to be with Jesus in the kingdom. That sounds typical of what's going to happen to the church, does it not? Some of us are going to die. I hate to have to say that, but some of us are going to die. If the rapture doesn't happen right now or tomorrow or a week from now, some among us will die. However, our bodies will be preserved in the sense that no matter their disposition, whether we're buried or cremated or blown to smithereens, God will be able to raise us from the dead, bringing that body together in a brand new way like a seed brings forth a plant and we will be raised in a glorified body. Some of us will not die. We will be alive when Jesus returns at the resurrection to rapture the church. We will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, uh, and that's what Elijah is representing to us. This resurrection and rapture precede the tribulation. At the end, we will return with Jesus, he in his glorified body, we in ours. Again, just like the disciples saw, represented by Jesus appearing with Elijah and Moses. And so there's an awful lot of end times theology packed into this transfiguration. It would become clear to these guys later. Right now, they were just excited to see these two guys. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, which means teacher, it is good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. So let me ask you this. What should you say when you don't know what to say? Don't say anything. Say nothing. Why three tabernacles? Well, it was around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Scholars who do timelines put this episode right at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's the feast when Jews make structures to spend time outdoors commemorating the temporary structures the children of Israel had during their time in the wilderness. Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths. They would make these little booths out of uh, wood and straw and, and leaves and stuff like that, and they would spend some time outdoors, and they would celebrate and commemorate the Jews in the wilderness before they came in to the promised land. And so also there was a common belief that the Messiah would return to establish the kingdom during a feast of tabernacles because the idea is that God is tabernacling or dwelling among men. And so even today, there is a messianic hope that the Messiah, we know it's Jesus, he's already come, but the messianic Jews think that their Messiah is going to come during the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's not far-fetched to suggest the building of three tabernacles. It, it wasn't a great idea because we know what was going on, but Peter didn't. And from his Jewish tradition, it would have been a perfectly normal suggestion. 
Peter must have thought, this is it. The time Jesus revealed himself and set things up with the help of these two heroes of old, Peter wasn't thinking preview or coming attraction. On with the show, this is it. I mean, think about it for a minute. You're up on the mountain with James and John. Jesus is up there with you. Suddenly, he is transfigured, looking glorious. Moses and Elijah are with him. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. You've just declared a chapter ago that he is the Messiah. This is it. This is the realization of all the Jewish hope for all the ages. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, verse 7, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him, man. Now God the Father is in the house. Talk about special cameo appearances. This is the, get this, the father of all cameos. See what I did there? Very clever juxtaposition of words. Thank you. Now, I want you to really, I don't want to be, be, you know, go over this and over this, but think of it. Jesus glorified, Moses, Elijah, Feast of Tabernacles, God the Father speaking from heaven. This is it. Suddenly, verse 8, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. I hate to even suggest this, but I wonder if they were disappointed to just see Jesus. You understand what I mean? We don't mean to belittle the Lord. I mean, Jesus, I mean, come on. But after you've seen Jesus glorified and after Moses and Elijah have been up there chatting with him and after the Father talks from heaven and you think it's time to set up the kingdom and you're probably the prime minister of that kingdom and, you know, all that, it's all gone. And they're just alone with Jesus. Instead of back to the future, they're back in the present. The kingdom was on hold like a movie whose release date was far in the future. I mentioned the Lord of the Rings. The day was April 7, 2000. New Line Cinema released a 100-second trailer teasing the Lord of the Rings. It didn't even have any footage from the movie. The first film would not be released until December of 2001, more than a year later. It was torture. The disciples must wait for the kingdom, and they're still waiting. But they had seen the future glory of the Lord. And as John would point out, we quoted this already, when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. It changed them. You can't see Jesus as he is in his glory and not be changed. Speaking of being changed, this word for transfiguration used of Jesus it's only used two other times in the entire New Testament, and when it is used, it's used of you and I as believers. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed, metamorphosis, by the renewing of your mind. 2 Corinthians 3, 8. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, metamorphosis, into the same image. The mirror in which we behold Jesus is the Bible. As we behold him, he is revealed in its pages and we are being changed moment by moment and day by day. At least that's the plan. He who began this work in us continues it until we are resurrected or raptured and we are where he is and he is like us. We talk about this a lot. You get saved, 
you're justified, it's just as if you'd never sinned, and then between that point and either your death or the rapture, there's a daily process of sanctification where God is making you more like his son Jesus, and we want to cooperate with that because that's the goal, and then ultimately, after you die or at the rapture, you'll be glorified. Your outward man is perishing. All the healthy habits in the world will not keep you from gray hair and wrinkles. Now, I'm not saying, don't misread me, I'm not saying you shouldn't have healthy habits. I don't, but I'm not saying you shouldn't. You want to exercise, you want to eat healthy, you want to get a nutrient bullet thing and, you know, drink kale shakes. That's, I'm okay with all of that. Me, I was eating chicken and sausage jambalaya yesterday like it was going out of style. But anyway, uh, you know, I'm not particularly healthy, but I'm not unhealthy. It's a genetic thing. But anyway, forget all that. (laughs) All I'm saying is that bodily exercise and nutrition, it profits a little while. You're still going to die if the Lord doesn't come back. You're going to get old and wrinkled and gnarly and your joints aren't going to work. You're going to fail. But you know what? That's the outward man. The inward person is being renewed day by day, strengthened, encouraged, blessed, filled with the joy of the Lord. Instead of seeing your face in the future by using some app and doing something about it, concentrate on seeing Jesus in the word. Put your spiritual health and habits first. Have whatever health habits you want. Just make sure your spiritual health comes before all of them. Now, secondly, in verses 9 through 13, seeing Jesus transfigured, you realize you're going to be coming back with him. I'm sure that the boys couldn't wait to get down the mountain to tell the nine what they had just experienced. I mean, can you imagine that? Wait until Bartholomew hears what we just saw. Hey, guys, you think you'd recognize Elijah and Moses if you saw them? Because we did. I mean, this is big time stuff. This is one of the greatest things that has happened so far. Now, as they came down from the mountain, verse 9, Jesus commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Another gag order? Really? Oh, man. These guys and the nine left behind would not fully comprehend the significance of the transfiguration until after Jesus rose from the dead. And then they'd still have some problems. Judas, of course, would by then have committed suicide and the 11 would choose Matthias to bring their number back up to 12. Any talk of the transfiguration would only further confuse them about Jesus first going to the cross and about the kingdom of God being delayed. So if these guys came down and said, hey, Jesus was transfigured, we saw Moses, we saw Elijah, God the Father spoke, these other nine guys are going to think, okay, it's kingdom time. Time to establish the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven on earth was heavily ingrained in these guys. And we're not talking about a spiritual kingdom that describes the overall rule of God in the universe. We're talking about the brick and mortar kingdom promised the nation of Israel ruled from Jerusalem by a descendant of King David. That's the kingdom. We talk about the kingdom of God. I'll sometimes say you can further the kingdom by preaching the gospel. And what we mean is the spiritual rule of God, the overrule of God, uh, the sovereignty of God, and the providence of God. But when we talk about the kingdom of God on earth, we mean 
a real 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ in his glorified physical body in Jerusalem on a real throne over the human nations of the world. That's what these guys were expecting because that's what the Old Testament promises. And that has not come yet. We are not in that kingdom. It is yet future. Verse 10, so they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. They obeyed. Don't overlook that. If you start looking for good things these guys did, you can find some. We're always criticizing the disciples, Peter especially, but they obeyed the Lord, and that would have been really, really hard. This is a tough secret to keep, seeing Jesus glorified and two Old Testament heroes. Jews believed in an afterlife and in a resurrection from the dead. Most Jews anyway, including the Pharisees who were seen as the more spiritual Jews. At the death of Lazarus, when Jesus came to his tomb, he said to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha said this, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. She was describing her hope, a Jewish hope, in a general resurrection of all the elect at the end of time. And so when you read her understanding of the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, was that there would be a resurrection, and she assumed it would be a general resurrection at the end of all time, uh, and that the elect would be on their way to heaven. We know a whole lot more about the resurrection than first century Jews did. We know that there will not be one general resurrection, but there will be two, one for believers and one for all non-believers throughout human history. We know that the resurrection of non-believers is a single event in time. It will occur at the end of the kingdom of heaven on the earth when the dead from all human history are raised to stand before the judgment of the great white throne of God to be found dead in their trespasses and sins, having rejected the gospel. They will be cast into eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. So if you're not a believer here this morning uh, and you die without accepting Christ, you will go to a place of temporary suffering called Hades, and then after the kingdom of heaven on earth is through, you will be raised with all the unrighteous dead, a non-believing dead from all time to stand before the great white throne judgment of God and you will be found unworthy of entering heaven because you're standing there in your own righteousness, your own good works, and those are not enough to qualify you to get into heaven. You need the righteousness of Jesus Christ who died for you and took your place. That's the gospel. He took your place in sin so that you might have his righteousness. And if you die in your sins without Christ, there is no hope for you after the grave. You will be cast alive into torment for eternity. And so just know that. That's the gospel. Now, we know that the resurrection believers, the resurrection of believers has started already and it continues over a period of time. Now, I don't mean that when you're raised from the dead, your body goes through stages. Ooh, I'm out of the grave, but now what about these worms, Lord? It's not, no. You are immediately resurrected, but there are different times at which resurrection takes place. For example, the resurrection of believers actually started when Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits. He was the first to rise in a glorified physical body, never to die again. The promise of others to follow after him. And if you remember from the Gospel of Matthew, there's a small kind of curious passage 
that says that when Jesus rose from the dead, a token group of believers also rose from the dead and went to heaven with him. And so we believe that that was the beginning of the resurrection. The resurrection of believers continues with the raising of church-age believers at the rapture of the church when we are changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and given our glorified bodies if we're still alive. Eventually... Old Testament saints will be raised in glorified bodies, as will tribulation martyrs and those who live through the kingdom of heaven on the earth until finally all believers have been raised from the dead and are safe in heaven. But again, notice the resurrection of believers takes place over time in several stages. This is important for two reasons. Number one, it's true. This is what the Bible teaches. But number two, a lot of people who are... um, wrong on their end times prophecy are wrong because they still believe what the Jews believed, that there is only one general resurrection at the end of time of everybody, believers and non-believers, and that will not fit into the prophetic scriptures. It just doesn't. And so they can't understand the timing of these events. So that's what's happening with the resurrection. Now, Let's cut Peter, James, and John a lot of slack. They had an extremely limited understanding of the resurrection. So when Jesus said, I'm gonna rise from the dead, they had no context for that because all they knew from being Jews or all they thought they knew was that at the end of all time, there will be a general resurrection. And imagine how them trying to figure out what Jesus could possibly have been talking about in his own resurrection and how that fit into the timing. And so they're very confused. Now they did have one question they asked the Lord. Verse 11, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? The scribes said this accurately, by the way, because of the last two verses of the Old Testament, the Italian prophet Malachi says, okay, that's just, that's a standard joke. That's out of the pastor's standard joke book. Malachi said in verses uh, five and six of chapter four, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the earth, earth excuse me, with a curse. Now think first about what their question implied. They said, Lord, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first and precede the coming of the Messiah? These guys had just declared Jesus the Messiah about a chapter ago. They believed now that he was the Messiah. They didn't believe everything. They didn't understand everything, but they believed he was the Messiah. But Elijah had not come. And his appearance on the Mount of Transfiguration doesn't seem to fulfill that scripture. He didn't really turn anybody's hearts by appearing with Jesus on there. And so they're confused. Jesus, you're the Messiah, so why do the scribes say that Elijah has to come? And he answered and told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Let's take that a phrase at a time. Jesus said, Elijah is coming first and he will restore all things. One thing I like about this is it tells us Jesus read and understood the Bible literally. Jesus was saying, the Elijah of the Old Testament, who you are referring to from the book of Malachi, that guy is coming before the end of all things. He's going to return to earth as a forerunner of the Messiah, of me. 
Now, we know what that means because we read about the two witnesses in the Revelation. One of them must be Elijah who precedes the return of Jesus in his second coming. The reason the disciples were confused, well, lots of reasons they were confused, but one, they didn't expect the death and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven and the church age all preceding his second coming. These guys were not looking for Jesus to die and rise from the dead and come at a later date. And so they were very confused about this Elijah situation. But now Jesus says, how is it written concerning the Son of Man? And you should stop there and realize that's a question by itself. He turns to them, he says, okay, you understand what they said about Elijah, and I've answered that, but let me ask you a question. What else does it say about the Messiah? In other words, he's asking them, have you read anything about the Messiah suffering? He was pointing out that there were prophecies they were overlooking. They had the kingdom prophecies memorized, but there were a whole category of prophecies they were ignoring. The idea of a suffering servant was not on their radar. That which makes perfect sense to us because we have the whole counsel of God made no sense to them. Jews, it's my understanding that Jews, when they get to passages in Isaiah, for example, that talk about the suffering servant of Jehovah, uh, they apply that to themselves nationally. They say, oh, well, God is just talking about us as a nation and our long years of suffering. Now, we know from the revelation of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament that that is talking about the person, the Messiah, who we know to be Jesus Christ. But the, these guys didn't know anything about that. And so Jesus is saying, you need to read the scriptures again in light of what's happening now. Verse 13, but I say to you that Elijah has also come and they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of him. The other gospels tell you plainly Jesus was referring to John the Baptist. John had come in what is called the spirit and the power of Elijah. He was the forerunner of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. His ministry of preaching repentance had as its goal to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. John even dressed like Elijah. He wore a camel skin mantle. If the national leaders of Israel had received Jesus Christ, they would have received John and he would have been the fulfillment of that prophecy in Malachi. Everybody would look and say, oh, that's what Malachi meant, that someone is coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. But they didn't receive it. They killed John and they would likewise kill Jesus. And so he said, John could have been Elijah, but now Elijah is yet coming. There's kind of a dual fulfillment. So isn't God amazing how he can write these things and have these things thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, and yet through his providence see that all things work together exactly the way that he had determined that they would without violating our free will, still giving us a choice to receive or reject him. This transfiguration of Jesus is packed with truth that the disciples would have to wait to discover and to understand. It was beyond them in terms of their knowledge, but especially in terms of them not really having the Holy Spirit uh, indwelling them and coming upon them to guide and direct them. After the day of Pentecost, they would know a whole lot more and they would begin to preach about the second coming of Jesus Christ. When we look at the transfiguration, we understand it was a preview of the second coming and that when Jesus returns to the earth, we are coming with him. 
We are becoming like Jesus and we will be coming back with him. At least the first part of that, that's the goal. We are becoming like Jesus. So ask yourself, if you want something to meditate upon, am I becoming more like Jesus? Is there something I can point to in my heart, in my spirit, in my attitude, in my behavior, where I see changes that the Holy Spirit is making in me by me seeing what Jesus actually looks like in the scriptures. By spending time with Jesus, beholding him, are these things just taking place in my life? Or is it just an outward set of rules and regulations that I'm trying to follow which won't help change me at all? And so, you know, am I having this personal relationship and experience with Jesus Christ? And of course, if you're not a believer, you're not. You first need to get saved. And the Holy Spirit is here today to draw you to Christ, to open your heart, to free your will, to say yes to Jesus and have your sins forgiven. But if you're a believer, this is the goal. And we want this. In our better moments, if someone says, do you want to be more like Jesus? Yeah, sign me up. That's the goal, to be changed into his image from glory to glory until I see him face to face in a glorified physical body, not capable of sin, never going to die, never going to wear out, perfect for all eternity, that's the goal. And in that body, you and I will return with him and establish the kingdom that these guys were expecting for a thousand years. And man, is that going to be glorious. And so if this is not the most exciting preview you've ever heard, I don't know what is. Let's pray.